Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, we're at the very, very end of Chapter 3. Just had another point to make. Uh with what, what, what Paul is saying there. So last, last week we, we ended by, by talking about the, the, the promise made to us. And the promise is something good, something that you don't have yet, but it is promised and you will get it. So what he's talking about here is the inheritance. The promised inheritance, which is, let's just put it in common terminology, heaven. That's what we're talking about. Don't want there to be any, any you know, controversy about that. So verse 29 says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, belonging, again, go back to what we talked about last week, is being a part of, being connected to. I am the vine, you are the branches. So... If you drove to Bible study this morning, you did not go out and stand next to your car and expecting standing next to your car to get you here to Bible study, right? You have to get in the car. You have to belong to the car. Your clothes have to go in the washer. You can't sit on on, on a nice lounge chair on the side of a pool and say, I am swimming. You're not swimming until you actually get in the water. So that's what Paul is creating for us. That we belong. We have to choose to belong. Once we make that choice, then we are declared Abraham's seed. We are the product of the faith covenant that was established thousands of years ago. And therefore we are heirs to the promise. Now, coming up in in 4.3, Paul is going to say when when we were children. So again, I've made the point repeatedly, I'll, I'll make it again now. I mean, it's... The law was given for children because children need a lot of laws, a lot of rules, a lot of regulations, a lot of boundaries, a lot of restrictions because they can't think for themselves. Teenagers still need rules and laws. Will you verify that for me, Bobby? Yeah. <laughs> Nothing new there, right? So once they turn 12, 14, 16, they'll say, okay, go do anything you want. It's the worst thing you could possibly do, right? It would be insane. In fact, you know, teenagers need more than, than, than five-year-olds in some ways. Uh, because they, they just, they're just not that smart yet. They, they cannot make the connection between, if I do this, then this will happen. In other words, they can't see around corners. Adults can see around corners. We know that if I do this here, this will be the result. Teenagers don't know that. So, he's talking about an inheritance. The inheritance is not here yet, is it? Are, are you in heaven yet? No. I mean, we get a little taste of heaven. We get a little little glimpse of it. We, we can experience a, to a degree, but we are not in heaven yet. Therefore, the inheritance is to come. Inheritance, once you receive it, then has a different name, right? Inheritance is something that, that, that you don't yet acquire. So, yes or no? Would it be silly 
if a child has parents who died and there was a million dollars in that trust, in that endowment that they would inherit. Basically, they took care of it. They wrote a will and said, when, upon our passing, my child gets everything. Let's say it's a million dollars. Would it be reasonable to give a million dollars to a five-year-old? Okay. I believe you. Now, I want you to explain why. Why is it foolish to give a million dollars to a five-year-old? Okay. <laughs> They're just dumb at that point. What are you saying, Kenny? I don't even know what a million dollars is. Okay. Children don't know what five dollars is. I mean. Okay, there's, there's no concept of the value of what you have received. Okay? What what else would be bad about giving a million dollars to a five year old? Everybody around them would know would, what would, a million was. Okay. So yeah. it would yeah. kind of open yourself up to yeah, you know, all kinds of people taking advantage of you and uh, and a child again doesn't know the difference, so would be easily taken advantage of. Like stealing candy from a baby. Where do you yes. think that phrase comes yes. from, right? Exactly. Okay. What else would be bad about giving a million dollars to a five-year-old? They'd buy a lot of foolish stuff. Yeah, that, that's what I was thinking. They would just, I want it, I will get it now. Do you see a similarity between a five-year-old with a million dollars and the prodigal son? Is that not exactly what the prodigal did? He took the inheritance early. That's supposed to get the inheritance until the father dies. <laughs> but he took it while the father was still alive. And squandered it on loose living, it says. Right? So at that age, not smart enough to manage it well. So what Paul is describing here, now this inheritance since now is based on faith, means that we are no longer children dependent on the law. But now we have an opportunity to demonstrate our true faith, our worthiness to receive the inheritance each day of our lives. For as long as we have to do that. After, a, after living a life of faith, then in the end... Because scripture talks about you know, being purified by fire. Yeah, I mean, we go through trials and tribulations. So we go through that whole process that then makes us eligible to receive the inheritance in the end. So basically, right now, if you got the inheritance, you're probably not ready for it. You would squander it. You would not use it well. I would, I would get my Ferrari yeah, it's, it's way too early for that, right? So, yeah, I mean, it just, we're, we need some more training, some more growing up, some more maturing before we receive the inheritance. But at the right time, that will come. We are heirs according to the promise. Not recipients yet, but heirs. We're in the direct line to receive it. Our name is written. We will receive the final inheritance. Now, that's, I mean, we do that with, if in fact a five-year-old loses his parents and is in line to receive a million dollars, what do they do with a million dollars? There it is. Till 
age 18, 21, some 25 sometimes, right? right? But it's in a trust. It's yours, but you don't get it till then. See? Heaven's the exact same thing. God has written a will with our names in it that we now just live each day the way we're supposed to until we get to age 21 and then we receive it. It's pretty neat. And there goes chapter 3. Longest chapter in history. <coughs> that had an awful lot in there. But do you understand, you know, verse 19, the purpose of the law? It was added because of the transgression until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. It was a temporary addition to the original code, the original contract that God made for a short time until Jesus came. Then it's no longer active. That's critically, critically important. But do you, have, do you have any questions on chapter 3? Any thoughts? Something more we need to process? Well, let's try a little chapter 4 then, shall we? What I am saying, Paul says, is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave although he owns the whole estate. Now that's a strange way to look at it, but that's, that's accurate, right? The child does own the trust, but can't use it. So in fact, he is a slave to the laws in place until the age of Maturity, reason, or whatever you want to call it, is, is achieved according to the, the specifications of, of the will. <coughs> the child will not inherit the estate. So that a trustee or a guardian would be placed over the child until the child has grown. Because the child has to follow the orders of this trustee or guardian. That's what he says in verse 2. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. So that's what Paul said earlier, is that it really doesn't matter whether you are Jew or Gentile, Everyone up until Jesus is, had been under some type of law. The Jews had the law. Gentiles had their own law. But everybody was slave to that law. You were subject to the law by whatever dish, definition you, you come at it. But look carefully at verse 3. We were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. Jesus came to fulfill the law, the basic principles, right? Now here's something to blow your mind. 
Jesus was born under the law. Technically, the power of the law did not cease until the crucifixion. Technically. I mean, Jesus started showing the value of it in those three years of ministry and saying, well, I'm not going to follow that law, I'm not going to follow that law. But it wasn't completely erased in terms of its impact in our lives until the crucifixion. Verse 4, but when the time had come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. So Paul is describing the process of salvation. And that was not accomplished when Jesus was born, but only when he died. So it started when he was born, but it finally became totally done when he died. Because that's when Jesus, what Paul is saying is, quote, redeemed those under the law. The birth of Jesus did not redeem us, did not buy our lives back. The crucifixion bought our lives back. Because Jesus paid the price, the penalty of our sin on the cross. Verse 6, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Now, we are sons of God. And we talked last week that you know, the gender definition doesn't matter at this point. We are one in spirit. So it's not that women become men. It's that women become this one thing, and men become this one thing. We actually all change when we get to heaven. I mean, it actually says in there, in heaven there are no marriages. So you guys are not going to be married in heaven. I'll tell you. Put your time in now, Kenny. You're, you're, you're good to go. Hey, you're outnumbered here, Kenny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Come over here and sit with me, Kenny. Yeah. <laughs> right? But so so the marriage you have will no longer be, and you will not get married in heaven. Because we're not genderized in heaven. We become spirit, which is non-gendered, right? So we actually all change. So he simply uses the term sons as a generic term, meaning that the son right here on earth, is the one who receives the inheritance. So basically it's saying, yeah, we all become whatever that is to receive the inheritance. So that's good news for you women. You don't have to become a man. So there's not not gender reassignment in, in heaven. My mother always stressed because she had two marriages. Her first husband died and when she... And one, you know, she would stress, she says, what's going to happen in heaven? Yeah. And so I, I would read, you know, I would read yeah. that passage to her. And, and I told the pastor that at her funeral, and, and the pastor mentioned that, too. It's different. It's yep. different. Well, do you, do you remember the, uh, the Pharisees actually tried to trip Jesus up? Yeah. And said uh, a man had seven, seven brothers, and 
his wife died, and then another brother's wife died, and he married her. Because remember, in that culture now, if you were an unattached female, if you didn't have either a, a father to take care of you, a husband to take care of you, or an elder son to take care of you, you had nothing. So the, the first guy thought it was his responsibility to take care of these, these women. But anyway, he wound up marrying all seven of them. The question posed to Jesus is, when they all get, get to heaven, whose who's husband? Yeah, who's married to who? That's where, that's where Jesus answered, well, there is no marriage in heaven. Makes it abundantly clear. So we are sons of God. Now, as if he hasn't made the point already, let me make it again. We are sons of God not because of circumcision. We are not sons of God because of the law. We are sons because we have the Holy Spirit. And so now the distinction that sets Christians, sons of God, apart from others, is that we call our Heavenly Father Abba. Daddy. It's Aramaic for, for daddy. It's a familiar term. Jesus' death redefines the relationship we have with God. And that's evidenced in our prayer life. If we feel as though we can only approach God occasionally, and we must do so with a, you know, kind of make an appointment and, and make it a formal statement that, you know, when we have to, you know, be, begin our prayers with, oh Lord, according to thine inestimable glory, you know, and, and come up with all these fancy terms as if God will not listen otherwise, we're in big trouble. So we now, since we are inheritors in this relationship, we have not only the right, but the expectation to have this kind of relationship with God. An Abba-based relationship. Not a formal-based relationship, but a friendly relationship. Kind of like David. I mean, David... He'd yell at God. He'd do all kinds. He'd treat, he'd treat God just like he would his father. <laughs> right? I, mean, just, I got something to say, I'm going to say it. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's why David is described by God himself as a man after my own heart. Right? Because this David is, is always trying to, to, to get closer to me. Always trying to you know, be a part of my heart. He's taking the effort to do that. So, maybe the, the, the best image I can come up with is... When we believe that we can come to God as Abba, Daddy, picture, I mean, I know my kids always did this and it was always such, such, such a great joy, but you know, when it came to be bedtime, you got to read the story, right? <laughs> you can't go to bed without a story. So if you're sitting in the rocking chair, what does the kid do? Crawls up in your lap. Daddy, read me a story. Right? Why don't we do the same with God? Imagine God sitting on, yeah, you know, we think he's formal sitting on that throne and, you know, you know ready to judge everybody. Not now. He's sitting in a rocking chair waiting for the kids to come so he can read us a story. Abba. Daddy. Pretty neat, huh? But that's the kind of relationship we're supposed to have. 
And again, that belies all the law. The law was very formal and rigid and all those things. And that's why, yeah, faith, grace are the exact opposite. <coughs> Just crawl into the Father's lap and say, Daddy, I, I need some help today. That would be awesome. <coughs> I mean, would if you raise kids... Would you be pleased with your child speaking to you 30 seconds a week in a formal tone of voice? Just standing all prim and proper and, you know, whatever day of the week it is, you get 30 seconds of my time, that's it. And the kid moves on and won't talk to you anymore. That'd be awful, wouldn't it? God looks at us the same. We are his children. And he doesn't want us coming to him for 30 seconds. Oh, Lord, fix this person or do whatever. Do whatever I tell you to do, God. And I'll use some proper terminology and make it sound really good so you'll listen to me. But, you know, that's basically what I'm saying. I'm only going to talk to you for 30 seconds a week and, and I'm done with you. That's not a relationship. The relationship is daddy. <coughs> we wouldn't like that relationship if our children treated us that way. God doesn't like it when we treat him that way. Verse 7, he's saying, so, since we can call God Abba, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. See, a slave is, was required to speak very formally to the master. That's not the relationship we have with God. Now we enjoy freedom in spirit. We are free to just talk with God. A slave could never say to the master what David said to God. Kind of like a really mean boss. Right? You kind of fear the mean boss. You're always afraid to go in and say anything to the mean boss, right? What Paul is saying is God is nowhere near like that. God's just waiting for his children to come. Not just on holidays. But on every day. So, any thoughts on this inheritance angle? Jeff, I'm not sure <coughs> this is the time or the place. And if this is wrong, this say we'll talk later. What's the difference between inheritance, heaven, and kingdom? Now, if it's Aim. too involved, okay. They are more similar than, than different. Inheritance. Well, what were the three? Inheritance, kingdom, and heaven. heaven. Isn't the kingdom now if you're Christ's? Yes. That's here. The kid, he said he came to bring the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Yeah. But in a limited Capacity, right? Again, we're not actually in heaven yet. So there is a little splitting of a hair there, perhaps. Uh, but that's why I say they're more similar than they are different. Uh, they're just kind of shades of the same thing. But yeah, you could think of the, the inheritance as the, 
the document that that grants us heaven in the end and in the middle here the kingdom of heaven is already being ushered in so it's more of a continuous pattern the kingdom is the way we live now as a Christian yes the inheritance is the final mm-hmm. and when we're in heaven forever yes all right. Yep, you're locked in. So the it, it really does come down to how you define the word inheritance. You can either look at the word inheritance as a document that guarantees something in the future, but we also use it to mean what I receive in the future. Okay. I, mean, it, I never thought of it that way before, but that word actually does cover both, both ends of the spectrum. So yeah, so then in, in the middle you have the, the kingdom of heaven already being, being established before us. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Never thought of it that way before. It's amazing what goes on inside your head, isn't it? <laughs> Other thoughts on the inheritance? I'm thinking like a preparation for our inheritance. You know, we're, it's a preparation. We're getting ready for our eternal life on this earth. Yeah, because the, the will often has clauses in it that, that stipulate you've got to do this before you receive that. You're preparing yourself for yes. eternal life. Right. And that's what, what we're reading about here. So since we are not in heaven yet, we need to understand what I need to do today to assure myself of the inheritance that I say I want. So love God, love neighbor, that's a good place to start. But we have to make, we have to make that decision because many, many people don't. Other thoughts on the inheritance? <coughs> All right, verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slave to those who by nature are not gods. So that point's made repeatedly in Scripture. Is you're, you're going to worship someone or something, um, all those pagan religions, I mean, they created you know, gods out of wood and stone and, you know, and bow down and worship them and all of that. And just, yeah, it's just stupid. Just ridiculous. I mean, the golden calf, for crying out loud. I threw all the gold in the fire and that golden calf just popped right out, Aaron says. <laughs> My favorite quotes in the scripture. <laughs> I don't think all mo- the kids that did something crazy like that. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that's right. How dumb do you think I am here? But I, again, demonstrating the the childishness oh, yeah. of those who need the law. I mean, if, if if it was ever clear that one incident alone should have proven how much they needed the law, because the law was designed to to bring them to Christ, to lead them to life, but they took it and warped it and made it something it was never designed to be and ruined it. But that golden calf scene really indicated, yeah, these are people that need some rules. <laughs> right. They're they're out of control. Because that's, that's something a four-year-old would say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, thinking they, they, they could buffalo you and say, well, I just threw this in there and I popped this golden calf. It's like, okay, I believe that. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. So in verse 8, Paul is saying two really important things. He's saying, obviously, there was a time when you did not know God. 
But secondly, he's also saying that there was a time when they did not know the one true God. They knew false gods, but they didn't know the one true God. So they became slaves to those false gods. Now, that's an interesting process. If a false god is not real, how can you become a slave to it? By your own will. Okay, so it's, it's your decision it's what you want. that I will place myself under the rules of this thing that I made up, <laughs> right? And so that that's why Jesus says you're either for me or against me, why there is no shading of those who are saved and those who are not. There's not, not those who are really, really saved. Those are, bah, we'll let you in. You're partially saved. And then those who are not. You're either in or you're out. Jesus says you can only come to the Father through me, he says. It's not me and something else. But you see, all these other religions, that's what they're doing. They may have a shred of Christianity in it. They may even say, well, you need Jesus, but you can also do this. That's exactly what these Judaizers were doing. You need Jesus, but you also need Moses. Right? So all of the religions, atheists, doesn't matter. They have The atheists have their own code as well. All these rules that they made up. and yeah. So anything other than Jesus is a false god. Anything. Go. In today's society, don't you, couldn't you say your, when you put money in front of God or your yep. work or your position, it's not necessarily a thing. It's right. what you've chosen to right. be in front of him. But that's the definition. What, what I have created to make it, I make up my own definition of salvation. Just be a good person. And you see a lot of these, you know, strange new religions out there that are nothing organized, nothing formal. It's just a bunch of, you know, that's the problem in America now is, you know, organized religion is even falling apart. That, you know, tons of people out there are just of this mind. I'm smart enough. I can figure this out. I'll just be a really good person. I'll hug a few trees. I'll wear a crystal around my neck and I'm good to go. They just combine all these, you know positive qualities of other religions all these other false gods a little bit of Jesus too and then they combine it together that makes sense to me that's what I'm going to follow but just like the Judaizers when you water down the true faith the end result is a false religion that will not save you in the end and that's what's happening out there and it's not like people are really bad they're not yeah. They're, they're, they're not making part of their religion I've got to rob at least one bank a week <laughs> they're not bad they're actually good people who are taking responsibility for I, I, I will help society awesome but they're doing it for the wrong reason they're doing it to justify themselves rather than rely upon Christ who has already justified us a huge difference in the motivation. And that makes all the difference to God. So you're either going to follow the, the one true God or you will be part of a false system, a false religion. It will be one or the other. Verse 9. 
But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Now there's a good question. God has initiated this relationship with us. But now that you know God, he says, or rather are known by God. I don't understand that. Because didn't God know them always? It sounds like suddenly he suddenly noticed us. (laughs) Not necessarily. The the, The wording there doesn't doesn't specify that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't give a time frame for God knowing us. Okay. Okay, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, it le- yeah. leaves that kind of vague. So, yeah, the it would be easy to look at that and say, you know, realize that no, that's that that has always been with with God. So what Paul is saying is, I mean, you know God, God knows you. Why would you go back to this crazy religion? You know, one of my favorite stories was the, uh, I get these, Elijah and Elisha I get mixed up all the time. I think this was Elijah with the, uh, uh, Elijah versus the, 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 uh, the priest of uh, uh, Balaam uh, with all the, the, the wood. Whoever, whoever, whoever can call their God to, you know, bring fire from heaven and start this, this pile of wood on fire. And then, you know, Elijah says, well, let's throw water on it and soak it up real good and, and do all that. Um, so Elijah lets them go all day long. And their religion was screaming at Balaam. They started at like 6 o'clock in the morning. And I mean, as you read the story, it's just hilarious. It's like noon. Yeah. Elijah starts poking fun at him. He just sitting there having a nice tea, just watching this. And all these priests are they're singing and they're dancing and there's he says, maybe he's on vacation. <laughs> maybe you should scream a little louder. I mean, they're all going hoarse and everything else. And then by by six o'clock that night, they're they're trying to get God their God's attention. They pull out knives and start cutting themselves. You know. I mean <laughs> Like that would work, and finally, then you know, but so is about ready to go down, and Elijah says, "Okay, it's it, it, it's time." But you know, dry wood—that's a piece of cake. Let's really soak this baby up. I forget how many cisterns of water they poured on it. It was like a lake around around the, uh, that pile of wood. And then 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 Elijah looks up and says, "Okay, now God." <laughs> so he made sure he was standing far enough away, but all the other priests of the, this other god were standing around, and the fire was so great it came down and incinerated all those guys. <laughs> burned them right up so uh, just just comical but yeah i mean that's what these other religions do they make it so that it's what i do i i I can conjure up my god to do something when in fact at best it would be a coincidence that anything happened as a result of your yelling and screaming and cutting yourself and doing whatever it would simply be a coincidence in first king 18 they Actually, around noon, they were limping around the office. Yes, they're, they're, yeah, they're, they're dancing. I mean, it's, just, it's hilarious. It follows the whole day's account, but they start cutting themselves and everything else. But it, it, it's, it's kind of like uh, Moses and the, the plagues. The first plague was turning water into blood. Remember that? Remember Pharaoh's sorcerers could do that as well? 
The second one was... Was it frogs? Frogs or flies? Fro I think it was frogs. I think so too. And, yes, I, and, and then the flies were feeding on the dead frogs. Yes, yep. yes, yeah, 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 yeah. They were, they, they were later. But imagine that smell. But, and so Mo <laughs> Moses puts his staff up and, you know, billions and billions of frogs. <laughs> and the sorcerers said, well, I can do that too. And made even more frogs. <laughs> Just, they're not too bright. But, so, I mean, maybe, you know, with a magic trick, with a sorcery trick, maybe you could do that. But after that, they, they, they could not replicate anything that, Mo that Moses was doing. Um, but like I say, it just might be coincidence. You might be able to do a little bit of that. But it's not, it's not true. It's not the real thing. Which, according to the Bible then, if you're not following the truth, you are worshiping an idol. Idolatry. So Paul says, are you crazy? You know the one true God. Why would you revert back to all this craziness? Where you have nothing consistent. Where you have no assurance. Where you have you know, no basis whatsoever in day-to-day -day life. Paul is saying, and I can see to a degree why these, now keep in mind, these are former Gentiles. These are not former Jews. But these are former Gentiles who were thinking about going to the Jewish ways. They're not going back to their old gods. They're going back to the law, which replaced God anyway. So that's idolatry. But you know, they, they, they thought, well, let's, let's give it a try. I mean, the law worked great for Jews for, for a couple thousand years. Let's bring it back again. But keep in mind, for the Gentiles, this was something completely new. They weren't reverting back to what they had already grew up with. They're trying something completely new, thinking that was the best thing for them. So they're going from the truth of Christianity to the idolatry of Judaism. But keep in mind, he's already said the law cannot give life. Why would you adopt any religious practice that does not bring with it life? Verse 10. You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. Paul's not saying that celebrating a holiday is bad. He's saying that you're celebrating bad holidays. <laughs> holidays based on the old covenant Judaism. Do we celebrate Rosh Hashanah? Do we celebrate Yom Kippur? Do we celebrate Hanukkah? No. Because those don't commemorate Dates and times, seasons or whatever that are significant and necessary to our salvation. We celebrate Easter. Yay! Right? We celebrate Good Friday. We celebrate that which is directly related to the true faith. We don't add a bunch of other holidays from other religions just to fill the calendar. And that's what Paul is saying you are doing. 
I fear for you, he says, verse 11, that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. Now he's getting serious. All that time I spent with you, I'm starting to think, was a big waste of my time. Paul is getting frustrated as he pleads with these Galatians. So verse 12, he says, I plead with you, brothers. Become like me. Now, modeling is a good thing. To see a quality or a characteristic in another person and think to yourself, gee, I'd, I'd like to do that, right? I, I should be doing that myself. So Paul says, become like me. What are the characteristics that Paul lived in his life that he is saying you Galatians should have as well. We worship the one true God. Okay, so stop watering down the faith and going after these these you know idols, these false gods. Stick with the truth. Okay, good way to start. He also modeled having been the, just the reverse for a while and seeing the light and changing. Yeah. So he's the poster child for yeah. this. He knows yeah. the value of it. What does he mean there when he says, uh, become like me or I became like you? How did he become like them? Or, or when they first converted, they had the true faith. Remember, he's already said that. You know, they, they, they had the power of the Holy Spirit. They saw miracles. They, you know, they had all these cool things happening you know, when they were new to the faith. So Paul says, yeah, you became like me and I became like you in those early days because we all were working on, like Judy's saying, the true faith. Yeah. <coughs> so what, what else would Paul have in his life that is worthy of these people and us to, to model in our lives? He was content. Okay. A, a, a simple life. Um, but a willingness to even make sacrifice for the needs of others. Right? What else would we find in Paul's life that is worthy to... I found his willingness to share. Yep. What you know, re- regardless of... The risk. The cost, yeah. I mean, he got thrown in jail, we got stoned. I mean, yeah, we got, you know, in an effort to do that, was, you know, got shipwrecked and beaten with rods. Uh, yeah, had, had a, a miserable time of it, but uh, that was job one, and he, he stuck to it. So, what are you saying, George? A dedication. Yeah, just singular focus. Not going to deviate from that. Leadership. Able to lead, lead others into it. Um, Of his convictions. I mean, he. Yep. So, so courageous, he's even willing to speak against Peter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wait, wow. That was pretty, pretty, pretty gutsy move. Um, I think there's at least one more. We've kind of talked about it, but let's, let's use the word since this is the basis of our conversation. Would you not say Paul was very faithful? He's saying, I have based my life on this original covenant with Abraham, which is based on faith, 
Therefore, become like me, and I want you to do the same. We have to understand that together. Become like me. So, yeah, so he's saying, become like me. I abandoned the law of Moses. <laughs> right? Become like me. And you too will understand that, that same truth. I live now by faith, he is saying. I became like you in the fact that you were never under the law, and I gave it up. So we were kind of the same in that regard too, right? So, I mean, we had that in common. Neither one of us now were ever claiming to be operating under, under the law. Because we understood that Jesus accepts us as sinners. And we simply believe as a result of that. But the, the sec second part of verse 12. You have done me no harm. So Paul is saying that, you know, you're not hurting me. I'm not frustrated with you because you're leaving me. I'm frustrated with you because you are leaving God. See, that's really the choice. You know, when you, when you make the law equal to or greater than faith, you're basically saying... God, I don't care what you want. I'm going to do this on my own. You're abandoning God. And doing that then definitely has an eternal consequence. You're no longer part of the true faith. <coughs> Verse 14. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. So, here again, he, there's quite a few places where he talks about this strange illness he has. And it still is confusing as to what, what, what he's actually talking about here. So, it should make us wonder why Paul even chose to go to Galatia to start with. I mean, there was many choices why he never really defines it, why he went there. Maybe it, it is that there was a special doctor in that Galatian area that whatever Paul's illness was, this doctor was renowned for being able to fix that. Who knows? Or perhaps it was just the climate of that area. You know, don't allergy sufferers go to Arizona? <laughs> right? Because it's, it's a not... Well, at least used not to be until it got overpopulated, and then people are throwing grass, and it's just as bad there as it is anywhere else now. But you know, you find a place that is more helpful to your your ailment because of the the, the weather, or whatever. You know, some people move south because of health conditions, or you know, move west because of, of health conditions. That that's a possibility. But if you look at verse fifteen, What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Now, that seems to indicate blindness. Right? I mean, if you're going for hyperbole, you would have said, well, you would have torn out your heart and given it to me. Or you would have torn out your brain and given it to me. But to be specific with eyes, that would seem to indicate the illness, the ailment Paul suffered from, was 
onset of, of blindness. Well, it does seem to be pretty, pretty clear because at the end of one of his letters, he, he does write, see, this is me, Paul, signing this. You know, my stenographer wrote it, but I'm writing it. You can tell it's me because my letters are so big because I can't see otherwise. So I have to write really big letters. So it seems to further the, the, the blind theory. Paul begins by saying, what happened to your joy? You see what the law does? Law makes you crabby. <laughs> makes you miserable. Right? Because that now is your focus. I've got to follow the law, follow the law, follow the law. You make yourself crazy with following a law. As opposed to simply living the life free in the spirit. It is so much better. You're not going to get joy from following the law. The law will suck all the joy out of you. You have chosen instead to be a slave of the law. Therefore your joy is gone. Verse 16 says, Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? You see, a couple of used words like, like, like commitment, dedication, and all those types of things. You know, I mean, this is how committed he is. Paul is willing to risk ruining this relationship because he sees how important it is that these people now come back to the truth. Because he knows that their salvation is in jeopardy unless they come back to the truth. He's so stern with them because he realizes that in this current condition, if Jesus were, were to return right then, these people would not be going to heaven. That's how serious it is. Now, I, if Paul is that way, and we admire Paul, do we not? Then the question comes to us is, why are we not as passionate about the urgency of what we see happening around us? It should motivate us as well to be willing to speak the truth, even, even a word of firm truth. The truth in love. And not caring about what the other person says. <laughs> right? Because again, if that person were to die today or Jesus were to return today, we need to determine that based on what I know about this person. You're not judging, you're simply discerning. Based on what I know about this person right here, right now, that person is not going to heaven. That should get us all riled up. That should make us want to engage these people in any way possible, absolutely positively. You're supposed to love your neighbor, that's your neighbor, love that person, but be willing to share the truth with that person. Should be really clear by the way people act, whether they're mindful of am I consciously pursuing the inheritance or am I going to go on it my own spend five minutes with anybody they will let you know very quickly which way they are they tell you that all the time people turn cameras on themselves all the time and, and put their tirades on on YouTube they tell you in 10 seconds 
I don't believe in God. If you listen carefully to what people are saying, they will reveal exactly where they're coming from. And in so doing then, that would dictate how we respond to that. This politically correct age, then we want to you know, not be aggressive with that and say that, well, that's okay for you. Right? We see, we know the truth. We are people of the truth. We know that salvation can only come through Christ. Through no other way. So when people say that, well, I know you go to church, but I don't need to go to church. I'll have no problem telling you about that whatsoever. It's hilarious. You know, I see no need to go to church. I really don't worship God. I believe in God. You know, I mean, mostly everybody would say that. But what does that mean? To them, it's just a word. A word that they're trying to pacify you with. So that's where you have to discern what do they really mean by that. And if there is that void in their lives, if they really don't understand what the faith is all about, then it, it is our responsibility to make sure that we clarify that with them. Paul doesn't seem to care if these people become an enemy, he says. Couldn't care less. Because my job is to get you to heaven. And I'm willing to do anything in my human power to make sure that happens. <coughs> Starting in verse 17. Those people, the Judaizers, right? The people who have it as their agenda to convert the Galatians to Judaism are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. It's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good. And to be so always and not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone. Because I'm just perplexed about you. <laughs> Have your children ever made a choice that perplexed you? Did you ever make a choice that perplexed your parents? <laughs> Right? I make choices that perplex me. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> You're the only one, though, Sue. Oh. <laughs> but thanks for that true confession. <laughs> right? So, your first one is my dear children. Right? So, you're, you're my children, but you're... I don't understand what you're doing. This makes no sense. I mean, he's already said, are you crazy? I mean, this is ridiculous. Can't you see that these Judaizers have a concerted effort to turn you away from the truth? And again, Paul is very clear. If you make that choice, that is your choice and will definitely impact your salvation. Because knowing the truth, having adopted the truth and then throwing it away, in the grand scheme of things, is way worse than never having it. <laughs> 
right? So in the eyes of God, that's a, like a, a double sin. And Paul says that's just ridiculous. <coughs> Don't lose your zeal, he says. He's already written that in, in Romans. Never lack in zeal, he says. But be zealous for the right thing. Hitler was very zealous for the wrong thing, <laughs> right? So you've got to figure out what the right thing is. <coughs> Paul says that their zeal was for no good. It's leading you down the wrong path. It's not going to give you what you need. It's not good because the law is not going to lead you to Christ. It will only lead to a curse. And that's why he says it's perplexing. Why would you choose knowingly to bring a curse upon yourself when you could instead make a choice to be blessed? Cutting off your nose to spite your face, right? Why would you do that? It makes absolutely no sense at all. But with our free will, you will have to admit, a lot of people make a lot of bad choices. Knowingly. But all the more reason we need to be engaging in those lives. And Paul talks about being a model for the Galatians. We need to become a model of Christ in the lives of others so that they can see what this true faith is really all about. So the true faith is not based on following a bunch of rules and regulations in the church. See, that's what most everybody out there believes. The church is just a system of rules. And that's why they're not here, because they're saying, well, I can figure this out on my own. I can figure out how to be a good person on my own. I don't need the church to do that. We have another dimension of that story to share, don't we? That's not why you're here. It's not because, well... Left by myself, I'm going to break all the rules so I need the church around me to help police me. That's not what it's all about. We have freedom in the Spirit. We're trying to get rid of rules because we're free thinking and we can figure this out based on the Holy Spirit leading us now in this freedom of the Spirit that we don't need the rules to any longer dictate to us the precise, specific things that we need to do on a day-to-day -day basis. So bottom line with all this is Paul is declaring that the Galatians have abandoned Christ. Again, in their mind, they, they were thinking, well, I'm keeping Christ, I'm just adding to it. But no, you can't follow both. You can't follow both Jesus and Moses. You can't place them as equals. You will follow one to the other. So essentially what they have done is they are following Moses. If you're following Moses, by definition, you have abandoned Christ. But the good news is, and why Paul is pleading with them is that even if you have abandoned Christ, even if you have denied Jesus three times, Jesus is still willing to take you back. Now here's your big theological question of the day getting ready for Holy Week. <clears throat> Peter denied Jesus three times. Was really upset with himself. <laughs> right? Beat himself up. After the crucifixion, he takes off. Goes back up to Galilee, starts fishing again. 
Well, Jesus doesn't want anything to do with me. Jesus goes after him, remember? Has breakfast prepared on the shore and invites him in and you know, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, right? Your $64,000 question of the day is, if Judas had not committed suicide Good Friday morning, would Jesus have had gone after him as well? You're shaking your heads yes. Yes. Yeah. Kind of neat to speculate, isn't it? But see, he didn't stick around long enough to give Jesus a chance to do that. He felt bad for what he had done, but he didn't stick around to receive the forgiveness, to reestablish himself in hope. That's unfortunate. So these Galatians, as far off the deep end as they are, he's assuring them, you come back. Jesus is willing to take you back if you come back to the original contract. You don't get to tell God what, the, what, what this inheritance says, what this will says. God has told us what it says. We need to get in line with that. If you're willing to come back to the original contract, Jesus is more than willing to take, take you back. But you can't come back with these Judaizers. You can't come back with Moses. Moses was a good guy in his day for that time until Christ came. And then that's out the door. We don't need the law anymore. <coughs> but Jeff, we don't know if, if Judas had made peace. Do we? There's no indication that he did. I would certainly think, since there's lots of those stories where Jesus gave Thomas a second chance, gave Peter a second chance, where you know, he's doing that, if he had done it with, if Judas had done something, I think it would have been recorded, plus the fact it says, Jesus himself says, it puts a woe, a punishment on the one who betrays him. He said it would have been better for him not to be born. Um, so there does seem to be a, the, the sense of, the, you know, that was, that was Judas's final decision. And when your final decision is, I have no hope in the power of God, that seems to be a, a fairly faithless statement, does it not? <laughs> um, so, I mean, Christian history certainly declares that, that, that Judas did not go to heaven. You know, from the little scant clues we have in Scripture, it would seem to support that. That there, you know, there was never seemed to be any, any turning. And... I think furthered by the fact of suicide is not a way to demonstrate one's remorse or, or acceptance of hope. Yeah. Let me show you how much I love you, God, by, by hanging myself. That's, that's not right. So, like I say, when you, you piece it all together, it, it, does, it, it seems as though Judas did not repent, did not you know, come back to to Jesus. He just gave up. He truly became hopeless. <coughs> Let's see if we can get, get, get through the end of chapter 4 because this is you know, starting in verse 21 to 31 is just kind of one big storyline. 
story about Hagar and Sarah. Now, here's what Paul's doing. He's making the point that the original promise God made to Abraham was that Sarah would be the mother of the nations. No one else. Now, again, that was in contract form. That was part of the will. Don't care if she's 9,900 years old. Doesn't matter. This was the contract. You, human, are not allowed to change the contract. Right? God is the originator. No one can legally change any provision in that contract. Sarah will be the mother of nations. Period. So, Abraham, great man of faith. Sarah, great woman of faith. But that one miscue, <laughs> that one lapse in faith, I think we call the, the single biggest mistake in all of history. <laughs> right? Because, see, that's what they did. They, they tried to change the contract. Much like the Galatians were allowing these Judaizers to change the contract. And that's what Paul has been hitting on. So this Hagar and Sarah story, I mean, is a graphic illustration of exactly what Paul has been saying all along. So, I mean... Don't want to place blame, but Kenny, it was the woman's fault. <laughs> it was... I'll go along with that. <laughs> See, this wasn't Abraham's idea. This was Sarah's idea. She convinced Abraham. She used logic. She had a great argument. Yeah, I'm way too old to have a child. This makes no sense. Take this young woman, my handmaid Hagar, and have a child through her. Maybe that's what God meant, <laughs> she says. That's her logic. And not that Abraham is faultless in this. He was stupid enough to believe this. Much like Adam. Yeah, here, take this apple. All right. No, sorry. You should be smarter than that. So, but again, bottom line is they're trying to change the provision of the original contract. So do you see what Paul does here? He's not focusing on Abraham. He spent some time with Abraham, but now it's not on Abraham. He focuses on these mothers. Sarah alone was in the original contract. She was the one designed to be the mother of nations. Paul focuses on the sons that were born. Ishmael and Isaac. Only Isaac is described as, quote, the result of a promise. The end of verse 23. Isaac is the son of the promise. Ishmael is described as being born in the, quote, ordinary way. That's a strange way of wording it, right? So basically saying Isaac is, in a sense, kind of like Jesus. Jesus' birth was rather unique. So he's saying Isaac was a unique birth. Not ordinary like all other children born. Isaac was separate because he is the only one born under the provisions of the contract. <clears throat> it makes him different by definition. So in other words, there is nothing special or unique about Ishmael. Furthermore, he says, 
Hagar is associated with Mount Sinai. What happened on Mount Sinai? He got the Ten Yes. Remember, Hagar goes to Mount Sinai. It's 430 years before the law, by the way. But she goes to the place where the law is given. The association of Hagar with the law. You see? Uh-huh. <laughs> Have we already established the laws of no value? <laughs> right? So, Hagar now associating with that means that her birth in this covenant contract form means nothing. Sarah is instead associated with Mount Zion. But the analogy goes even further. Ishmael persecuted Isaac. And thus the same is true for Christians today. We who are part of the true inheritance are being persecuted by non-believers. It's easy to tell who is on the side of God. The ones who are on the side of God are the ones being persecuted. Are Christians supposed to persecute others? Right? So that's not in our job description, therefore we don't do it. So if anyone is being persecuted, it must be a Christian. But look at what Paul does. He goes even further. He says that Sarah finally had to get rid of Hagar because her son was persecuting Isaac. Paul says the same is true today. The Galatians need to expel these Judaizers because they're trying to lead the Christians back to the Jewish ways of the law. So it would be like, in this analogy, Abraham and Sarah have Isaac. They already had Ishmael. And Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac stay together for a while. If Abraham decided that, well, I'm going to leave Sarah and Isaac and go be with Hagar and Ishmael, that's what he's saying you Galatians have done. You have left the true covenant to accept something else that you want to be true. And it's not. Because God says it is not true. Therefore, verse 31, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. So the law, Mount Zion, slavery, see that continuous thread. It all means the same thing. You are not the product of that. You are the product of a free woman who chose faith with her husband. So whether you're in the bloodline of Abraham doesn't matter. What matters is we're in the faith line. Bloodline will not save you. The faith line is what will save you in the end. Look at verse 30. Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Says even having a child with her does not change the contract. 
She will never be part of the inheritance. The son born will not receive it. <coughs> and unfortunately, Ishmael got really mad about that. And where he moved to, married, started having kids of his own, and they proliferated in that area, and that is the Arab people today. Thousands of years ago, it says nobody can ever get along with these people. <laughs> the Ishmaelites. The Ishmaelites, yep. Yep. That's why I say it's the biggest mistake in all of human history. Yep. If that had not happened, we would not have terrorism. We wouldn't have 9-11. Israel would not be you know, fearing for their lives on a day-to-day -day basis. <laughs> I mean, think of you know, the impact of that in world events. Can you imagine how different our lives would be today if that one act had never happened? Yeah, we wouldn't have had all these recent wars. I mean, seriously. It impacts every aspect of our lives. Gas would probably be a lot cheaper. <laughs> uh, like I say, it just... Everything. Everything. Goes back to that one lapse in faith. Maybe Adam and Eve's lapse of faith. Yes. It was equally as bad, if not worse. That kind of got the ball rolling, didn't it? <laughs> the snowball's going down the hill rapidly at that point. Yep. But, Sarah? Yes. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, was it another. Conceived by the Holy Spirit type of thing? Yeah, yeah, just one of those. Well, used, used Abraham's seed, but, you know, I mean, Jesus is the, is the product of no man involved, uh, which makes that somewhat unique. Abraham was involved in the process, but, um, you know, God opened her womb and made, made that possible to happen even at that, 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 that elderly age, yeah. And uh, because that was the plan. Yeah, so, it probably happened that way, so that no one could say that yes. it was an immaculate thing like with Jesus. Yep. It had to be on the woman's side. Yep. Keep that clear. Yep. And that whole thing made Sarah laugh. <laughs> 99, come on, having a baby. Yeah, which she probably shouldn't have done. Yeah. <laughs> Just, that'll make you laugh. So. Yep. Loads of fun. All right, well, there goes chapter four. Any, any thoughts on chapter four before we switch gears entirely and get into chapter five and start getting into some normal stuff for a change? But we're going to leave the, this argument and fighting about, about the law now and get into the more positive aspects. Chapter four wasn't nearly as long as chapter three, was it? <laughs> any, any thoughts, questions, comments? terrible fire in Brooklyn when all those children were killed. It was a result of 
them being Orthodox Jews and using a hot plate for the Sabbath. At least that's what they think is referred yeah. to it, because that was how people were getting around that law about cooking meals on the Sabbath. Yep. I don't know how many children, but 11 or something. Yep. I mean, it was huge numbers. See, see what the law does? Yeah. yeah it makes you crazy. Yeah. That you that you you do feel compelled to find a loophole, mm -hmm. so you can be justified. But it, I mean, it's just it's splitting hairs at that point. It just it's ridiculous. Yeah, it just makes absolutely no sense at all. That, that's why Jesus said, "You mean you mean if somebody's dying, a doctor can't help that person on the Sabbath?" The law was no. Mm -hmm. Jesus, says, get out of the way. I'm going to help this guy. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just ridiculous. You know, there should be a law preventing help. For crying out loud, that's just silly. <coughs> Can I ask you a question? Please do. Well, this is one of the crazy ones. Now and then. What does that the business with eating pork with the Jewish people? Was that a type uh, that you can't want to eat any pork? Back in that day, and God knew, knew what he was doing, they, pigs are generally very dirty. Right. They have a lot of um, parasites and a lot of, and they didn't know how to cook well enough to get that out and to prepare well enough to, to prevent disease or whatever. And so God says, just no, no pork. It would just a whole lot simpler to just say, don't, don't do that. Again, much like a child, you don't understand it. I do. I'm the mom. Yeah, <laughs> just do what I tell you because I'm the mom. And yeah. So now our processing of pork now is much much safer and and okay now. So have at it. They still don't need pork. Oh, certainly not. No, because it's the law. So all the old laws, and they've continued to develop even new laws. They've added many more since Jesus's day. Yeah, they've gone even crazier about that, including tearing off toilet paper on the Sabbath. So can't do that anymore. So <laughs> makes no sense at all. But you know, see, that's that's what the law does. If you if you're willing to make one law, you're going to make a thousand. Because you know you'll see the oh I like that you know let's regulate that aspect of life. So basically, what what the law does is make us God, because we think we are controlling our environment instead of allowing God to control our environment and us in the freedom we have now, simply placing ourselves in God's hands. See, we, we, we want to replace our, why the law is so bad is because we become gods ourselves and therefore don't need God. Ultimately. That's the, the end result, yeah. When you, when you follow that through to its natural conclusion, that's, that's exactly what happens. Yep. Well, well there you go. Chapter 4 bites the best. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.